Beyond Barbarossa, Episode 33, Resistance. Wind blew the snow smooth, polishing the surface of the lake to a dull sheen under the full moon. Snow weighed down the boughs of close-growing fir trees and covered their trunks more than six feet high. The moonlight made steam sparkle as a train puffed and groaned from the forest edge slowly along the frozen lake, the lantern mounted on its front a second moon. The engineer squinted through the small forward window, which gave only an obstructed view. He kept the train speed low and one hand on the brake lever, despite the commands of the Wehrmacht officers in the cars behind him. He knew the risks of going too fast in this country. Even though snowplows were welded to the front of the engine, snowdrifts over the tracks could derail the train. And besides that, he knew men hidden under the dark boughs posed a worse threat. A shadow lay across the tracks ahead, where the forest converged again on the railroad. The engineer blinked and peered one more time to confirm his fear. He pulled inside and put all his weight onto the brake lever. Ring the alarm, he shouted to the fireman. The steel brake screamed and threw the engineer and fireman to the front of the cabin, pressing them against the hot iron. The engineer spun valves to release pressure. Clouds of steam whistled out of a dozen places on the engine and bells rang in every car. The train slowed, but the momentum of the passenger cars pushed the engine until it rammed a barricade of trees that had been felled over the tracks. The logs cracked with a noise like exploding gunpowder. Some flew off the tracks, sending up tidal waves of snow when they came down again. Others wedged under the engine. It shuddered, tilted, threatened to tip over, then left the track, sending waves of drifted snow over the fields. The passenger car slammed successively into the rear of the coal car, pushing the engine farther. It dug a long trench, sending more snow into the air. Finally, the train groaned to a stop. For minutes, the scene resembled a moonlit blizzard as the disturbed snow fell a second time. Steam hissed from the engine. The fire in its furnace rumbled. Bells clamored the length of the train and cries and moans of the passengers echoed across the fields and lake. A door on a passenger car creaked open and clanged as it hit the bent side of the car. The wind sighed through the boughs of the fir trees, shaking snowflakes to spiral down. Nothing else moved in the clearing or on the lake. The whistling of steam grew lower and softer. The fire in the furnace became silent. Minutes passed. Only the steam moved from the broken engine, driven by a gentle wind. Finally, a helmeted head poked out of the one open door and withdrew immediately. After another minute, the head reappeared and looked left and right. More steam came from his mouth. A muffled order from behind and the soldier jumped out of the car, struggling to keep his submachine gun above the snow as he sank to his waist. Another soldier followed him then a third, pointing submachine guns into the darkness beyond the moonlight. Finally, a junior officer in a peaked cap and long coat, holding a pistol in his hand, jumped into the cleared area. He lifted his gloved hands to his mouth and breathed on them in a vain attempt to warn them. Down the train, soldiers and officers climbed out. Men asked, what happened? Non-commissioned officers asked, any injuries, weapons ready? Soldiers formed a defensive line. Weapons pointed into the forest or toward the lake, 
but they had trouble holding their rifles and machine guns over the top of the snow. One soldier climbed the ladder up the side of the engine and knocked on the door to the engineer's compartment. He was answered by a rifle shot from the forest. He arched his back and fell into the snow, knocking the man below him down. More rifle shots came from the forest, hitting the officers first, then the soldiers with machine guns. The Germans returned fire blindly. They did not see their attackers and their bullets went uselessly into the trees. Fire came at the Germans from all sides. Some of the men in the snow tried to climb back into the train, but they were cut down, shot in the back. The moonlight turned the blood black on the snow. A burning torch flew out of the forest, turning end over end to land on top of the first passenger car. Made of steel, it did not burn, but more torches flew, aimed toward the open doors. Then an explosion blew off the rear of the last car and the Germans knew their attackers had grenades. They tried to hide between the cars or under the snow, but one by one they fell. More explosions came from under the train and then someone managed to pitch a grenade into one of the doors. Within a minute the men outside could see flames and they knew they were dead. The whole train was ablaze. Soldiers jumped out through windows and doors to be killed by more bullets. Within minutes, it was over. All the men outside the train lay dead in the snow. Under the trees, men in black uniforms watched carefully. One shot a German body, just to make sure he was dead. And then the insurgents stood up. In twos and threes, they got into sleighs hidden in the woods, slapped the reins, and returned along paths they had made when they had arrived hours earlier. The Ukrainian insurgent army had begun operations against the occupying Germans. Welcome to Beyond Barbarossa, the first English-language podcast in the world to focus on the Eastern Front of World War II. I'm Scott Burry in the Red Beard Studio on traditional Algonquin Anishinaabe territory, also called Ottawa. This is episode 33, the first in a two-part series about resistance to Nazi and Soviet occupation on the Eastern Front during the Second World War. First, we're going to take a look at the origins of resistance, do a little background, and then we're going to zoom in and take a look at the organized resistance to Nazi occupation in the Baltic states of Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, and then Belarus. Next episode, we're going to focus on the areas where resistance was most significant and bloody, Poland and Ukraine. Before I go on with this episode, I just want to remind you that there are only a few days left to enter the the draw for a paperback copy of the Eastern Front Trilogy. To do so, all you have to do is leave a rating and or review of this podcast on your preferred podcasting app. Everyone who leaves a rating, uh, send me an email pointing to it to contact at beyondbarbarossa.ca. As a thank you, you'll get 
an EPUB copy of the three volumes of the Eastern Front Trilogy. That's Army of Worn Souls, Under the Nazi Heel, and Walking Out of War. And as I said, everyone who does so will be entered into a draw for that free signed paperback. That opening story is an excerpt from the book Under the Nazi Heel, a part of the true story of a Canadian man drafted into the Red Army who later served in the Ukrainian resistance. This podcast has reached the summer of 1942, the high point of the Axis in the Second World War. In Europe, the Third Reich's control stretches from the Arctic to the Mediterranean, from the Atlantic to the Volga. Italy was its Axis partner. Spain was officially neutral, but friendly, more or less, to the Axis. This was the time, summer of 42, that the Lend-Lease program was starting to kick in, as American trucks, jeeps, weapons, tanks, artillery, airplanes, ammunition, and most importantly, food, was reaching the USSR in large quantities. Soviet resistance was stiffening ever more, as more and more new armies reached the front lines. The Germans had reached their peak. They would go no farther in the east. But still, at this time, Germany occupied a huge amount of territory in the Soviet Union. Poland, the Baltic states, all of Ukraine, Belarus, and millions of square kilometers of the Russian Federal Soviet Republic. And that doesn't even include the parts of Eastern Europe outside the former borders of the USSR. Czechoslovakia had been divided and occupied. Hungary, Romania, and Bulgaria were puppet states. Germany occupied Yugoslavia, Albania, and Greece, and more. According to historian Antony Bivor in his book, The Second World War, quote, the treatment of civilians in the occupied territories and of prisoners of war remained appalling. By February 1942, some 60% of the 3.5 million Red Army prisoners had died of starvation, exposure, or disease. Convinced Nazis did not just take pride in their pitilessness. Their dehumanization of victim categories, Jews, Slavs, Asiatics, and Roma, was a deliberate form of self-fulfilling prophecy to reduce them through humiliation, suffering, and starvation to the level of animals and thus so-called prove their genetic inferiority, end quote. But the Third Reich's control over these lands and their people was not total. The treatment that the Nazis meted out naturally led to opposition across the occupied lands. So now it's time to talk about resistance. in episode 16, I talked about the German occupation of Eastern Europe, about the General Gouvernement of Poland and the Reichskommissariats in Ostland, the former Baltic states, and Ukraine. In this episode, I'm going to look at what the people in the occupied countries were doing about it. Yes, many thousands became partisan fighters. In fact, the term partisan was 
coined about this time. It's uh, synonymous now with resistance, native guerrilla fighters against an occupier, but it was first coined or first used in Yugoslavia in, the, in 1940 by Josip Broz, better known as Tito, the partisan leader in Yugoslavia. Partisans and similar guerrilla fighters were active in those lands in southern Europe, Albania, Yugoslavia, and Greece. It strikes me that the Balkans is another significant part of the Second World War that doesn't get a whole lot of attention here in the West. Maybe there should be a podcast about that. What do you think? Let me know. For now, though, let's focus on the Eastern Front, the lands of the USSR. The thing is about partisans is they often fought each other as much as they did the German or Axis occupiers. That's something we're going to look at more closely. Partisan and anti-Nazi resistance was very real in every territory that the Germans conquered. In many large areas, German soldiers could not go out alone or at night without the probability of being attacked or killed. In June 1942, that high point I mentioned, Czech resistance fighters assassinated Reinhard Heydrich, the so-called deputy protector of Bohemia and Moravia, the man who dreamed up the final solution to the Jewish question. So, as you can see, Germany's control over occupied territory was far from complete, but it was brutal. Across the Eastern Front, Germany's invasion was initially welcomed by local people as liberators from communism. For example, in Ukraine, the churches were allowed to function again, as were some, some other cultural institutions, for a little while. But very soon, the Germans' brutality became obvious. The Einsatzgruppen, the death squads, moved in, killing Jews, Roma, communists. They arrested business and cultural leaders and deported them to concentration camps. They also recruited sympathizers, local Nazis, and formed Waffen-SS divisions in Estonia, Latvia, Ukraine, and Belarus. Let's face it. You can find con artists and their dupes and fools everywhere, even today. The Soviet response to the invasion was also problematic for the nations they had occupied between 1919 and 1941. In fact, their occupation was brutal as well. And when Germany invaded in 1941, the Red Army conscripted men across these territories in a desperate attempt to build up their defenses. They took in as many as 34,000 young men just in Estonia, which is an astounding number given the population of that country. As the Germans advanced seemingly unstoppably, Stalin issued his infamous scorched earth order. Retreating Red, or, retreating Red Army soldiers and civilians were to take everything of value with them that they could carry and destroy whatever they left behind. In February 1942, the Red Army began forcible conscription of non-Russian men aged 17 to 30 
from the so-called liberated territories because they were, quote, burning with hatred for the invader and a desire to participate in the subsequent liberation of their Soviet motherland with weapons in their hands, end quote. These two things increased the already powerful resentment and hatred toward the USSR and communism. But so before we go on, let's take a short break. This episode is brought to you by the Eastern Front Trilogy, the true story of a Canadian, Maurice Burry, drafted into the Soviet Red Army in 1941, just in time to be thrown between the jaws of the USSR and Nazi Germany at the launch of the greatest land invasion in history, the monstrous war called Operation Barbarossa. In three volumes, Army of Worn Souls, Under the Nazi Heel, and Walking Out of War, the Eastern Front Trilogy is the story of the largest and deadliest side of the Second World War, seen through the eyes of a man who was there from the earliest days in 1941, through Germany's grinding occupation of Ukraine, and finally to the savage end of the war in Berlin. You can find the three individual volumes as ebooks exclusively on Amazon, or purchase the three-volume complete paperback on any online book retailer or at your local bookstore. To learn more about the Eastern Front Trilogy, visit scottburyauthor.com. Did you know that the cappuccino was invented by a Ukrainian? Or that many first names, like Philip and Agatha, were brought to Western Europe by Ukrainian princesses? Or that a Ukrainian was the first female given the rank of officer in a modern army? Well, if you didn't, and even if you did, you can learn more about my podcast, Wandering the Edge, a podcast about Ukrainian history with a spot of travel, and all in English. And if you like Beyond Barbarossa as much as I do, because, well, it makes my life a whole lot easier since I don't have to do any episodes deep diving into the Eastern Front of the Second World War, please take a listen to Wandering the Edge for a deep dive into Ukrainian history, culture, and traditions. Find out more on wanderingtheedge.net. And now let's get back to Scott exploring and explaining the Eastern Front of the Second World War. Thanks for coming back to episode 33, part one of the two-part series on resistance to Nazi and Soviet occupation on the Eastern Front of World War II. Now, let's zoom in on the resistance efforts in the various countries along the Eastern Front. Starting with the Baltics. Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania had been occupied by the USSR in 1940. For more information on this, get to the uh, bonus episode on the invasion of Poland. This is available for Patreon and other supporters of the podcast. The Soviets in 1940 replaced the former independent governments and deported thousands of politicians, intellectuals, and civil and military officials, as well as business leaders. Then, in 1941, the Germans came, quickly conquering the entire Baltic states region by September 1941 and organizing it into what they called Reichskommissariat Ostland, or Eastland. Lithuania was the first Baltic state that the Germans attacked on 22nd June 1941. 
because, well, it had a direct border with East Prussia. When Army Group North struck northeast and crossed the border that fateful day, it also sparked an uprising against Soviet government among the Lithuanians. Lithuanians declared independence and formed a provisional government. They managed to take two major cities, Kaunas and Vilnius, but the Germans took control of those cities and the entire country by the 29th of June, so one week into the invasion. As it retreated, the Red, they transported or kidnapped 4,000 political and criminal prisoners to the USSR and massacred them. Lithuanians welcomed the Germans as liberators, but the Germans did not recognize the provisional government. They immediately began punitive actions, murdering civilians in reprisals for any German deaths. Reich's commissariat Ostland set up civil administration themselves, taking away Lithuanian government control. They banned nationalist organizations and sent members of those organizations to concentration camps. Interestingly, unlike other occupied territories, the Germans did not recruit or create any Lithuanian Waffen-SS divisions, and they did not impose any quotas for forced labor in Germany among Lithuanians. So, it did stand out a little bit. In response, Soviet partisans began operations against the Germans immediately. The partisans, these underground fighters, mostly comprised isolated Red Army soldiers left behind for whatever reason as the Red Army proper retreated. They also included uh, communist-leaning Lithuanians and later on escapees from POW and concentration camps. In late 1942, so a year and a half into the war, these groups started getting direct support from Moscow. And, uh, but the thing is, they were mostly led by local Lithuanian commanders. In total, there were about 5,000 pro-Soviet partisans in Lithuania, and they played a significant role in, later on in the Red Army's advances into Lithuania. Most of the non-Soviet partisan activity, so this is... Uh, groups that wanted to establish an independent Lithuania, most of their activity was directed against the Polish Home Army, uh, ironically. See how this gets really messy and complicated? They want Lithuanian independence, but instead of fighting either the Germans or the Soviets, they're fighting the Poles. Latvia suffered greatly under Soviet occupation in 1940 and 41. The Soviets imposed a puppet government and deported over 34,000 Latvians, mostly to Siberia. 40% of those deportees perished. So, when the Germans invaded, there was, of course, another spontaneous uprising against the Red Army. The Germans reached the capital of Riga on the 29th of June. That's one week into that invasion. So not long at all. They crossed all of Lithuania, got to the capital of Riga in a week. The Germans took total control of Latvia by early July, and then they brought in the Einsatzgruppen troops. They had orders to cut the population of Latvia by 50%. In other words, kill every second Latvian they see. In the fall of 1941, so three months, 
30,000 Jews in Latvia were shot to death. Another 30,000 from the Riga ghetto were killed in November and December in order to reduce the overpopulation in the Jewish ghetto. Hard as it may be to believe, among this destruction and death, this murder, Germany managed to recruit 140,000 Latvians into the Latvian Legion of the Waffen-SS, an auxiliary troop. There was a radical nationalist organization called, and I apologize in advance for my mispronunciation of Latvian, an organization called Perkonkrusts, allied with the Germans until the Germans repressed it. That At that point, they began an underground resistance. There was also the Latvian Central Council, which uh, resisted through publishing periodicals and propaganda. And there were smaller groups, the Latvian Guards, the New Regiments, the Latvian Hawks, and more. And, of course, there were Soviet partisans, communist partisans, controlled by the Kremlin. When the Germans invaded, Army Group North was the group that advanced the fastest and farthest. One unit actually went 90 kilometers on the first day. So Army Group North reached Estonia's southern border. So Estonia is the farthest north of the three Baltic states. And the Germans reached its southern border between, at various points, between uh, July 7th to the 9th. Because they had a little bit more time, so they had about two weeks to respond, the USSR conscripted thousands of Estonians into the Red Army. But that was a useless, futile effort. The Estonians also uh, reacted by uh, hoping that this would be a chance to establish or reestablish independence. They formed an anti-communist partisan group called the Forest Brothers. And doubtlessly, there were Nazi sympathizers among them. Like I say, in any group, you can find right-wing dupes. They also formed a home guard of, uh, of patriotic troops. In early July, the Battle of Tartu, that's a city in Estonia, the Forest Brothers killed thousands of Soviet NKVD troops. And apparently, although I've not been able to find a lot of verification of this, captured another 14,000. Then, along with German Army Group North, the, they captured Narva on August 17, and then the capital, Tallinn, on August 28th. Hey, that's the anniversary. So today's the anniversary of that. In Tallinn, the Estonians briefly hoisted their national flag for a few hours. The Germans came and took it down and hoisted the Reichskriegflagge, their war flag. That's it's You've seen it. It's a red back, background with red and black crosses in, uh, with a swastika in a circle in the center. I put a picture of it on the web page. The Germans then dis forced the Forest Brothers to disband, as well as other national armed groups. So the Forest Brothers and another organization called the Omakaitse went underground. And they persisted in their resistance even after the war against Soviet occupation, getting support from the British, American, and Swedish intelligence services until they were compromised by Soviet spies Kim Philby and others. But that's a subject for another podcast. Interestingly, there were almost no Soviet 
partisans operating in Estonia throughout the war. So let's jump south. Belarus. Three distinct types of guerrilla fighters operated in Belarus. And this is actually kind of a model of the types of operations going on in the main part of German-occupied USSR. So there were three groups or three categories we can describe. There were pro-Soviet communist partisans who were supported by the USSR. There were pro-independent Belarusian groups. And there were Jewish resistance groups. The pro-Soviet partisans numbered as many as 100 units of various sizes each. At first, they were pretty isolated and had few resources through the winter of 1941-42, which was really tough. They had to depend on uh, local people to give them food, basically. The Germans were able to pacify them or repress them pretty effectively. However, by the end of 1943, these pro-Soviet partisans controlled 60% of Belarusian territory, limiting the German occupiers to the urban areas. Pro-independence units at first tended to collaborate with the Germans, seeing them as liberators from communism. But the Germans quickly turned on them and increased their repression. As that repression increased, collaboration waned especially after the Germans arrested Catholic priest Vincent Hedluski, leader of the Belarusian Independence Party, and then executed him at the Melitrostenets extermination camp. Jewish resistance groups in Belarus protected families. Basically, they were hiding from the Germans, and a number of Jewish families and communities moved out of cities and towns and villages into camps in the forests. Men who were able to carry and use weapons acted as guards for these small, isolated communities or took part in combat. They destroyed bridges, factories, railroad tracks, and killed police and Nazi officials. Next, we come to Poland. And that's where things get really complicated. So complicated, in fact, that it's going to take its own episode to describe in full. So come back in two weeks' time for a deep dive into the resistance against Nazi occupation and Soviet occupation in Poland and Ukraine. If you want a better understanding of the war, the progress, and also where all these various places are, I've put some maps and photos on the website beyondbarbarossa.ca or beyondbarbarossa.podbean.com. You can also listen to the podcast and this episode on my own website, writtenword.ca. Click on the podcast button in the banner. You can find the books and podcasts I mentioned in the show notes and on the webpage too, like Larissa Zarchnak's Wandering the Edge, the podcast about Ukrainian history and culture. I want to thank all who have supported the podcast through Patreon and other supports, including William L. Hall, Nicholas L. Thomas, Eva Gru, Nick54, and Ashley Perez. Until all Ukrainian refugees can return home safely, your financial support goes to charities that help Ukrainian refugees. 
If you like this episode, consider following Beyond Barbarossa on your preferred podcasting app. Don't forget to leave a rating or a review of this podcast, however you feel about it, on your preferred podcasting app. Everyone who does so before the end of the month, before August 31st, it will get the EPUB versions of the entire uh, three volumes of the Eastern Front Trilogy. That's Army of Born Souls, Under the Nazi Heel, and Walking Out of War. Also, if you do so, your name will be entered in a draw for a signed paperback copy of that entire trilogy. So don't delay. All you have to do is enter the rating on your preferred podcasting app and then send me the link to that rating or just notify me about it in an email contact at beyondbarbarossa.ca or through the Beyond Barbarossa Facebook page. Don't delay, time is running out. If you find it made any errors or if you just want to uh, make a comment, if you have a suggestion, please let me know. You can reach me by email at contact at beyondbarbarossa.ca or through the Facebook Beyond Barbarossa page. And I'll put those links into the show notes as well. Original music was composed and recorded by Nicholas Burry. I'm Scott Burry. Until next episode, keep your paddles in the water. Slava Ukraina.